Coming up on this episode of Belief Hole. For the last 50 years, the quaint coastal village of Montauk has been haunted by a dark legend. Whispers carry through the town of secret military projects, bizarre creatures, portals to other times, and still stranger things. On this episode of Belief Hole, join us as we explore government mind control and psychic experiments, hidden underground facilities, and time travel technology, and endeavor to unravel fact from fiction within the extreme and controversial claims of the Montauk Project. Conspiracy, synchronicity, Sasquatch, homunculus, alien races, Satanism in Hollywood, MK Ultra, Tartaria. There's like a whole. I've been watching this one guy. Like, Close the door, in. Jury. Close your door. What's the uh, inner Earth disagreements? Ghost Dad. <laughs> I like that movie. Dogman, Bohemian Grove, Felt, Magicians are demons, Specters, Spirit summonings, Strange disappearances, Sky Whale phenomena, yes. Alternative history, Shadow people. Shh, quiet. I'm trying to say words with the mouth. It's getting dicey out there. Poltergeists. That's cool. Anunnaki. What is the moon? <laughs> Elf towers. I would never talk about. That's old. Y two K. Cover ups. Apocalyptic catastrophe. Well, hello, hello. Well, hello. Hello there. I'm John. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Chris. Yes, you are. And you are. And there you are. And here we are. And you are listening to the Beliefful Podcast. Couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) Today we have an extraordinary adventure for you. It's going to be epic. Yeah, it is. Oh, we are going to untangle a web of strangeness. I've never crammed so hard in my life for anything. No. The last four days have just been sitting in the dark, reading this weird, bizarre book. Hey, the fame and the money's worth it, right, That's guys? true. <laughs> I did have a dream that we were successful last night. <laughs> <laughs> and we were also private eye detectives running through the streets of Miami. It's a prophecy. Chased by robots, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, it's what are we doing today, Jer? Oh, you're asking me. Okay, well, this, ladies and gentlemen. Did you guys tag team this one? Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, it hasn't been since, like, I think season one or halfway through two where we like really worked hard on the same episode because of the expansion. You know, we usually separate a topic for, yeah. This one, I started reading the book and the book isn't super long. It's like 200 pages. The book is called The Montauk Project Experiments in Time by Preston Nichols. Yes. And it's less than 200 pages. But once you start reading it, you need a roadmap. You have to untangle it because it deals with parallel timelines, timelines weaving in characters coming through time, jumping back through time. And it's not written... Very clearly, the guy, Preston Nichols, who we're going to be talking about, it's interesting too, because he is definitely eccentric. When I first read some of the book and I'd seen bits of him, I thought this guy is a huckster. Like he's just making this stuff up. But then I actually sat down and watched him talk for like an hour. And I realized this guy is very smart and he believes what he's saying. He may be delusional, but I think he's an authentic person, even if he's crazy, but he's smart enough to make a lot of this make sense. Part of the reason we're doing this is because of Stranger Things. It's based loosely on the events that happened, supposedly. It's very, there are so many parallels. I mean, yeah, and it's the perfect time because the series finale dropped this week. Yeah, and it's been such an epic show that's been kind of a 
conglomeration of a lot of different supernatural paranormal phenomena that we've covered on the show and also just the nostalgia of it. It relates so well to us because we grew up, you know, around that time, around that time. Well, we were born in the eighties, right? Missing the pay phones, using maps and uh, not knowing everything at the drop of a hat. Also, it's a story we've been wanting to do for years. We had a friend who gave us the book that we're using for the episode today and we thought now would be the perfect time. Absolutely. And she will remain anonymous in case we get to some of her personal anecdotes about the location, her spending time out here on Long Island near Montauk. But anyways, as far as the show goes, Stranger Things was originally supposedly called Montauk. Yeah. So this is, none of this is proven then. This is all like just hearsay. Okay. So this is the interesting thing. I was going to say this. So yes, nothing is completely validated outside of Preston Nichols in his circles of compatriots who have allegedly experienced the testing, like the Montauk boys. We'll get into that towards the end of the episode. The Montauk boys would be like a parallel to the character L in Stranger Things. Yes. You asked about, is anything confirmed? Yeah, right. So there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that we're going to go through. There's been more recent discoveries that point to there's absolutely more going on at this old defunct base than what is official record. Okay. So this isn't like a unclassified government project. No, 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 no. They're, okay. it's, they're completely denied. But, okay. it t- but it's connected to and touches on verified government projects like MKUltra. Yes. Right. Other brainwashing type Project programs. Rainbow, although it's different in this story. Right, which was the precursor or the, the project that the Philadelphia experiment happened in. Which is allegedly. another hotly contested conspiracy right. theory. So there's a lot of things to unravel. Yeah, the reason why the story is so large and even in under 200 pages, you have to do so much ancillary research because... Ooh, good word. You like that one? That's a good one. Because he throws in Nikola Tesla, Albert Einstein, John von Neumann. John von Neumann. You've got time travel. You got portals opening to Mars. We might get to that. If not, it'll be in the expansion. But so much stuff. And yes, as Jeremy mentioned, it's like, I don't know if you've seen the show Dark, that awesome German science fiction show. I saw the first half of it. Okay. So the time travel in that is very complex, but this book is almost more complex because convoluted. You realize that the narrative, it moves in different directions. So it was really a mind boggling book to get through. So we unraveled it as much as we could and studied other sources. And now we have a story to tell. Yeah. Here's another question. Yes. So did you read anything about what other people thought about the book? Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. It's very divided. Yeah. It was, uh, most people, say. most people think it's fabrication. Most quote serious people think it's complete nonsense. What's a serious person like Neil deGrasse Tyson? I feel like everyone knows a serious person. People who think, I mean, people who think of themselves as serious people. And it it is fair for sure. This book is It's. It seems like it might be kind of easy to dismiss out of hand. Yeah, absolutely. What what makes it believable. those are the juicy ones. Exactly. And what adds to that juice is that (laughs) there is the context. This takes place in Montauk, which has a history, a military history. It has the technology there with this radar tower called the Sage Radar Tower, which we'll get into. It has the equipment. It's right down the street from Brookhaven Institute where they've Mm -hmm. done testing that makes sense where a lot of this original technology, stealth technology, which the Philadelphia experiment was allegedly an experiment to test this stealth technology. All this stuff is is happening in this area. So the context makes sense. And then with the allegations of conspiracy, of mind control experiments, abducting people, you know, derelicts and children, all this stuff has been proven and is on the record with other government projects like MKUltra or the Holmesburg experiment, right, Chris? That was right. Called? Horrifying Holmesburg experiments where they tested on prisoners. They wanted to create a maturing candidate. This is a disclosed project that the chemical branch of the army was doing. And they were also testing the most carcinogenic aspect to Agent Orange on the skin of these prisoners without their permission. So we'll get into a lot we'll get, of those different... Yeah, but just to say, this is not a new thing for the U.S. government. 
confirmed things have happened. And it's believable because of well, the context. The government usually tells us most of the things that happen behind oh, yeah. closed doors. Oh, mostly, doors. yeah. And, and they've told us everything now. <laughs> yes. Now we know that everything. I mean, we don't have any good reason not to trust everything they say. No, they've told us that they've told us everything. So. Yeah. I guess we should stop the recording. <laughs> <laughs> but there is definitely stuff in this material and other lectures that Preston Nichols has given where you're like, what? There's so much extreme out there stuff. He's an eccentric Ooh. and a rambler. Sounds like a good topic for our show. Yep. If it's out there. In the expansion, guys, if you're not a member, sign up. We're going to get into some real crazy stuff. And you asked John about Elle and how she's portrayed in the book. Of course, she's not in the book. They're the Montauk boys, which are children that were abducted and used for these experiments, mind control, uh, allegedly psychic abilities, very much like Elle and her compatriots in, in Stranger Things. But I did find an account, an alleged account of a girl who believes she was abducted right around this time period. And her experience matches so much like Elle's. There's so many parallels. And I thought like, did the Duffer brothers find her story? Yeah. And like the same thing, like floating in like this black viscous liquid being attached to electrodes in an isolation tank used for these tests, but also reptilians involved. It Ooh. gets way crazier. And that's all coming up in the expansion. But why don't you describe this place for us, this beautiful scenic area that is Montauk Point. And okay, so to set the scene of Montauk, this is the context of Montauk geographically. At atmospherically. Is that the real picture? That's the radar tower, the Sage radar tower in Montauk. Let's go there. Is, right? You can. So this is what's cool too is it's now Camp Hero State Park. Camp Hero. That's hilarious. Isn't that crazy? Named after a, a military officer. I can't remember his name. Mm -hmm. And died during World War II. Andrew Hero. Was he a hero? He, his last name was Hero? Yeah. That's so awesome. I mean, how do you not become a soldier with a last name? like Or like a firefighter or something? This is a stupid thought, but I thought, is that where Hero comes from? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. What? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't Come live on. before the 40s. I can't, I'm, I don't know. That's do, the do you guys know dumbest where it comes from? thing I've ever heard you <laughs> say. This is the man who thinks mountains are old giants. So my brain broke reading this book. You need, yeah, put it back in. I was going to say. <laughs> I'm working on it. Um, oh, well, the Camp Hero was interesting because it, cause we have to talk about Stranger Things, of course. But there was a, a scene in the fourth season. I won't spoil anything, but she writes a letter to her boyfriend who kind of sucked at this point. And she left him and she said, I'm going back to be a hero. And she essentially goes back to what is Montauk. Oh, that's hilarious. So she went back to Camp Hero. I'm going back what to become a hero. Is this? this is the most recent season. And if you haven't seen it, this won't spoil anything. Remember she's in California, L. She decides yeah. to return to Hawkins and she leaves the... that note. She's like, I'm going back to be hero again. Oh yeah. I, and I just thought that was that. funny because she literally, if you look at what this is based on, she yeah, goes he back to Camp Hero. Right. That's crazy. I didn't put that together. Yeah. The boyfriend was being kind of a baby at that point. Yeah, he was, yeah. But that's an interesting point. <laughs> we have complaints. She's going back to Camp Hero, really. Yes. If you look at it from the Montauk perspective. I just thought that was kind of interesting. But this is where this takes place. Jutting out from mainland New York into the choppy surf of the Atlantic Ocean is Long Island. And at the very east end of this Long Island is the picture. <laughs> I like how you can find another adjective <laughs> for island. <laughs> this long, long island is the picturesque village known as Montauk. Its land is rich with history. Its sands rumored to be rich with lost pirate booty. Yar, mate. And the ruins of the Montauk Air Force Base, now haunted by controversy, legend, and mystery, is where our story takes place. So Montauk is at the very edge here, and in Montauk is the old Montauk Air Force Base, now decrepit, left abandoned. You're not allowed to go there, but you can go to Camp Hero State Park, which surrounds it. So you can't go there? You can't go into the military area. That's what are they hiding? Exactly. Well, that's what's weird too, is the, the level of uh, security that's there. Is there a lot of security? Yeah. I mean, I guess you could make the case, obviously, like, you know. It's a dangerous place. Right. Old yeah. equipment. You know, there are signs that say, like, if you find an old mine, don't touch it. 
let someone know a so, mine like a blow-up device like a blow-up device <laughs> <That's> <laughs> as dictionary it's term. technically defined as why would they have mines there well it's from world war ii so we'll talk about the base like what what this place was okay. used for but at the end of the episode we'll weigh the evidence and we'll talk about the rationalizations for certain things and we'll talk about you know everything all together and the some scales things, of truth the scales of truth and we're going to talk about some things that point to that something went on potentially there and as we said before, things have happened in the past. And just real quickly, I want to touch on, the, on two examples we mentioned briefly. Um, MKUltra, right? Yep. It's in our intro. One thing we've never actually covered out loud on the show, but we've talked about many times. Because we've been programmed not to. Exactly. It's such a dark topic, too. It yeah. is. And by the way, there are serious accusations about child abuse, abduction. So In this one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's the foundation of this. So just to say, like, yeah, we joke around a lot on the show. We have a fun time. But obviously these things are serious topics. And disclaimer for kids. Yeah. We won't get too graphic. I really enjoy the children being abducted. John likes the (laughs) the darkness. Just kidding. It does make for a good tale. Well, I mean, if you look at like, you know, Stranger Things would be kind of boring if Elle never got Look at every Stephen King story. It's there's a child who's in danger. There is a difference though, obviously, from a movie and real life. Right, exactly. That's what we're covering is alleged real events. It's, you know, it has the nice soft edges of a Nerf ball. The Stranger Things in the show? Yeah, but real life is different. Absolutely. Absolutely. So speaking of real life, MKUltra, CIA program that began in 1953, was reduced in scope in 64 and 67 and was halted in 73. But it involved subjecting unwitting, this is important too, unwitting and unwilling participants into behavioral programming, including the use of LSD and other chemicals, electroshocks, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, and verbal and sexual abuse and torture. It was torture, right? In addition to other forms of torture, brainwashing, which is also key to this story. And interestingly enough, as MK Ultra shut down by Congress because of a leak, I believe. No, it wasn't a leak. Sorry, it was a FOIA request. And then all this extra information came out. Right. About it. So there, Congress is like, no, you can't do this. And the CA is like, oh, sure, we'll stop, right? Because that's what they'll do. They won't just move it somewhere. But interestingly enough, mm-hmm. by the way, MK Ultra happened at like 80 different installations around the country colleges, hospitals, yep. universities, mental institutions, 80 universities alone, I think. So they close it down allegedly, right? Because Congress says, stop, please. So yeah, the shadowy CIA is going to listen. Anyway, what, what starts in 1973? Montauk Project, allegedly. Mm-hmm. So MK Ultra gets shut down. Montauk Project, allegedly begins according to press right so the the question in the book one of the things that's brought up is is part of mk ultra phoenix project it's also known as as an umbrella term is mk ultra an aspect of it that has been funneled into what becomes not only mind alteration which is the beginning of mk ultra but turns into experiments in time travel opening up portals through psychic ability parallel reality using technology and a communication between the psychic mind and computer systems so that's what we're getting into yeah. The other one I would just want to, I kind of mentioned already, but I just thought there was a, an interesting quote here from a terrible experiment that went on in Philadelphia. The Holmesburg. Yes. This is a quote from a man who wrote a book about it, Alan M. Hornblum. He was a literacy director or something. He worked at the prison at the time, but couldn't say Acres anything. Acres of Skin. What? Yeah, that was the name of the book. That's, that's a horrifying title. That ter- it sounds like a Silent Hill sequel, doesn't it? Maybe Hostel or something. The yeah. descriptions where they were testing on the skin of these people. Right. Acres of Skin is disturbing. Yeah. So they would take scotch tape and they would put it on the skin of these inmates and put it on, rip it off, put it on, rip it off until the top layer of skin was removed. And then they would drop highly carcinogenic chemical compounds right into the skin. So it would absorb quickly into the bloodstream. The effects of this would be terrible. People would taste metal in their mouth. They would pass out. They'd wake up. Their skin would be on fire. 
At one point, one of the doctors allegedly took it off of him, put it on the wall, and it ate the paint away from the wall. Crazy experiments, but this was another example. People are wicked. Yeah, and this, yeah. this is how this exactly ties into the accounts today with the mind manipulation. The quote from the author of this book who worked there, the army comes in here in 1963. They're looking for basically the Manchurian candidate. They're trying to come up with a chemical that can get an inmate to do certain things if they want. This was real. It happened here. Without a doubt, the U.S. Army Chemical Corps was performing mind control experiments in here from 1963 to approximately 71-72. So just another example of this did happen. These things were going on. So, you know, not everything can be thrown out of the basket of the story. Think right. about that time period, too. That was before technology was... So advanced? Yeah, and they really were trying all sorts of weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like dolphin training. And oh, like, yeah, that's a great you know, story. Psychic. Timothy Leary. And astral travel. Psychic you know, Any way they could get an edge over these other countries. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, the government, different agencies, the FBI, the CIA were interested. It's on record. Actually, our friend Brad sent me this a while ago, but going back as far as the 50s and even earlier, they were looking at Bill Murray-style Ghostbusters testing of telepathy and psycho abilities. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. So they've been interested in this for a long time. Well, look at Project Stargate. And that will tie into this only insofar as showing that there is another confirmed example of a government project that was testing psychic ability. Right. Because the big concern about Project Stargate, they were concerned about what the Soviets were doing because they knew that Soviets were spending or had spent at least $1 billion on psychotronic research and how they could weaponize psychic ability. When the U.S. government heard about this, they're like, we need to do something. They started Project Stargate, which became like eight different programs. At the end, they funneled back into this overarching Project Stargate. Yeah. I think it was Operation Stargate initially, but um, just an example of like the government was looking at this, all this stuff's real. How much of it is real in our story, we'll be looking at and examining. But these things did happen. And that's the key here in this episode. Let's begin the story. Let's do it. Where's the boyfriend? Whose boyfriend? Elle's boyfriend. Where does he come up? <laughs> He's in the... It's going to be throughout the episode. <laughs> Which character plays this role? Warning. Brief Stranger Things tangent ahead. He's the psychic that goes through time and turns into a one-year-old baby. Does he get really disappointed in 11 certain times? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that boyfriend. Oh, Elle's boyfriend. I was, I was thinking of uh, the kid who's like the douchebag at the beginning and then the, in the first season he's oh, like he's awesome. a good character. Uh, Baseball bat guy. The video store guy? Steve. Yeah. Steve, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I didn't show. like him at the beginning, but he's definitely probably one of the better characters. I should get this out of the way. Pretty great show. First season's awesome. Fourth season's great. Season two, I think, not was great. Was that season two? Season three's not good either. It's it? not. It gets a little better in season three. This is all my opinion. Was season two the one that they went to the city? Yeah. Oh, God. How do you go from season one to season two? <laughs> Elle meets characters that she used to be in the experiment with, and their names are like Dozer and Bronco. Rebel and Punk superpowers. Right. Like the Matrix 3. They're like murderer assassins, and they're like all rough and tumble living in this warehouse, but everything is spotless. Their clothes are clean. They just yeah. went to Target. Isn't it the worst I mean, when they're like in a bad situation and the hair is perfect? Yeah. Like yeah. Jurassic Park. Oh, yes. The new one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's terrible. Uh, there are parts I liked. Well, I just like seeing the old crew in there. You Chris, know? you did not like that movie, though. We made fun of it the entire time. No, I know. We did. But I, I did love seeing, like, whenever... There were some cool scenes. Whenever there was Malcolm and Sam Neill... Laura Dern. Laura Dern. But whenever they were on, their interplay, and when they were in the jungle and there were dinosaurs. But that didn't happen until, like, halfway through the movie. I know. There were, I'm just... Relating back to Stranger Things 2, it had a lot of that unnecessary, yeah. weird kind of you know, traveling all over the world, you right, know, leaving right. locations, making confusing. Yeah, my theory always about with Stranger Things was that the Duffer brothers didn't expect the popularity of season one to be so immense. And then they didn't really have anything ready to go. Se- season two felt like a quick grab for concept ideas. 
And they but went there's the a difference direction. between grabbing for concept ideas and then like, I don't know, it just had this, sometimes it feels like there's agendas coming from the outside, pushing mm-hmm. it in well, certain for directions. Sure. I think there was a little that bit has of nothing that. to do with being underprepared. That's no, I right. just, I was so, maybe pressure from the right. outside. I was to, referring more to like the thin characters in oh, the city. Right, right. The, the names you were like Dozer. The, and, one, the cheesy thing about that, but also makes sense, is that in the 80s you did have these like action movies with Sylvester Stallone and other right. guys were like a bad guy that is just very surface or a girl. And they're, they're like these characters that are, I'm trying to think of a specific reference, but where there's these superficial rebel punk characters mm-hmm. with the stupid names. I mean, they were pulling from that. So, I mean, nostalgia wise, like, and that's another thing they, they get slack for. Well, they copied this idea from Spielberg or, well, obviously these are all homages, yeah, right? Yeah. Like they're pulling from it, but without that, that's the purpose of this, of the show. The whole thing is like a wondrous nostalgia, magical look at this basically regurgitated Montauk idea, but it's, I think it's, it has value in that. Yeah. People that say it. Yeah. Again, to say, I, I like, I really like, there are weak seasons. The first and last, this last season has been great so far. You guys might've finished it by the time this comes out. We'll be dropping it. I think three days after the last five or six episodes or whatever airs. So maybe you're just finishing it now. But either way, let's get back to the actual story behind. Hey guys, let us know if you want us to stop the show and start a movie review channel instead. (laughs) That'd That'd be be a lot of less work. I'd love that it's here. That'd be so much fun. That would be great. Let us know. Say, let's do it. Okay. Before we get into how Preston, our main character in the story, discovers what is allegedly happening at Montauk, I just want to tell you a quick background of what this base was built for, what it was doing there. So Camp Hero was originally Fort Hero. It was a coastal defense station that was disguised, I think this is really cool, as a fishing village. So they built it to look like a fishing village because during World War II, they were concerned about German U-boats. They were worried about invasions from the sea into New York. So this was like the last stand idea. So they built these huge gun batteries. We'll talk a little bit about them later because they play into what it might be under the base today, uh, the conspiracy and the possible explanation. But the disguise of the fishing village was very cool. And yeah. the church in town was actually a gymnasium for the, the military personnel. So oh, everything cool. was set up to look like just your average place because they didn't want to be a target. Yeah. Which is just a cool setup. Where did they go to church then? Uh, it was personal prayer at home. <laughs> Outdoor chapel. Personal prayer. So it's the, it's the progression from this World War II facility. Then during the Cold War... It gets transferred to the Air Force and becomes Montauk Air Force Station. And it gets its notorious sage dish. This giant looming structure that's still there today, the last one of its kind that looms above Camp Hero. This is a super-powered Cold War-era sage dish, and it was constructed so that in the event of a Soviet nuclear attack, it would give the U.S. 30 extra minutes of warning warning that you were about to all die and you'd have no escape. Yeah. It's so, the last one of its kind, right? It's basically built to let people know, like, hey, you're going to die. Do you want to know? Do you want to also be a dick and shoot nukes back? <laughs> you, know? you can't really do anything Before about it. we all die. Just enough to cause mass panic. Yes. Yeah. But this is what's interesting about the tower, too, is it makes sense that this project that Nichols talks about would happen there because yeah. of the technology used in the Montauk project. And the way he describes it as an electrical engineer, it sounds like all that equipment would be there. And he was able to take some of that equipment home at one point. You'll get into that. But it's just the perfect environment for the story to take place. So either very creative, backpedaling, seeing what happens at Montauk, and then saying, oh, this crazy story could happen here, or a delusion, or it actually happened. Right. So basically, the end of the story of this base is it gets shut down after the Cold War. It becomes abandoned, derelict, on paper. By all official sources at the time, it was not in operation. Later, there'll be evidence presented through investigation by a senator that helps Preston and discovers that there was a lot of activity going on there. But for our purposes, when our character Preston Nichols comes upon the base for the first time, this place is derelict and shut down. At least he thinks so, or it's supposed to be. 
So let's get into how this conspiracy was allegedly unveiled initially through the eyes of this man, Preston Nichols, and his experience. The author of the book. Yes. So Preston Nichols, interesting guy. In 1971, he begins working for a place that he calls initially BJM in the book. When the book was published in 1992, he's referring to it as BJM. And this is another thing about the book. There's a lot of people and places that are referred to with pseudonyms, which you find out later. And initially, people thought this is an example of how this is all fraud and made up. Later, you find out that these are real people and here are their names. This is the senator that was involved. Right. BJM, you find out years later, is AIL. It's an Airborne Instruments Laboratory that was actually based in the area. So Long Island. Whether or not he worked there is still controversial because just like Bob Lazar, uh, all the records are gone if there were any. Right. Same with his degree in Tampa. Gone if he went there. Just like Bob Lazar. Just like Bob Lazar. So again, has this happened before? Yes. Does it mean that he's telling the truth? Not necessarily. But let's continue. So he's working at AIL in 71. And it's a defense contractor in Long Island. And then he alleges that through the years, he received an electrical degree specializing in electromagnetic phenomena, which is key to the story and the projects and experiments that they do. And although he's not especially interested in the paranormal, he obtains a grant to study mental telepathy. And he's doing this to determine whether or not it exists at all. And that's not unheard of. We had people from IBM were at home trying to talk to plants with yeah. their computers and telepaths. Brilliant people have side projects that usually are or can often be more obscure and strange. Exactly. So he discovers something allegedly during this time over the years experimenting and working for AIL. He discovers telepathic communication does in fact exist and that it works a lot like radio waves, right? Which we've kind of talked about before. We've tinkered around with that idea, right? That the mind is a receiver. So this is kind of an interesting part that I was reading about. He said the principles of these, what he calls telepathic waves, acts in similar ways to radio waves, but not completely. And of course, there's not a lot of description in this. There might be in his lectures. And again, for the sake of the story, we're not going to go into super detail about how every machine worked and what parts they used. Right. We started to do that, and then it was like 30 pages of notes. Right. So we're going to stick with the story, but this is what he was claiming. Telepathic wave. And this is what he has to say about that. I found this very exciting. I had discovered a whole brand new electromagnetic function that was not in any of the textbooks I'd ever seen. I wanted to learn as much as I could and studied all the activities that might use this type of function. My interest into metaphysics had been launched. I continued to research in my spare time and collaborated with different psychics to test and monitor their various responses. In 1974, I noticed a peculiar phenomenon that was common to all of the psychics that I worked with. Every day at the same hour, their minds would be jammed. They couldn't think effectively, suspecting that the interference was caused by an electronic signal. I used my radio equipment and correlated what came on over the airwaves at the times the psychics were non-functional. Whenever a 410 to 420 megahertz cycle appeared on the air, they were jammed. When the 410 to 420 megahertz cycle was off, the psychics would open back up after about 20 minutes. It was obvious that this signal was greatly impeding the ability of the psychics. Okay, this is where he decides to take matters into his own hands and try to figure out what's going on here. This is where he begins to get led down the rabbit hole. I decided to trace the signal, placing a modified TV antenna on the roof of my car. I grabbed a VHF receiver and set out looking for the source of it. I tracked it right to the Montauk point. It was coming directly from a red and white radar antenna on the Air Force base. At first, I thought this signal might have been generated accidentally. 
I checked around and found out that the base was still active. Unfortunately, security was tight and the guards wouldn't give any useful information. They said that the radar was for a project run by the FAA. I couldn't press the point beyond that. In fact, their statement didn't make a lot of sense. This was a World War II radar defense system known as Sage Radar. It was totally antiquated, and there is not any known reason why the FAA would need such a system. I didn't believe them, but I couldn't help but be intrigued. Unfortunately, I had hit a dead end. You just like Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, I did awesome. have a little bit of a Canadian. Yeah, yeah I like perfect. It. I like it. So I love that visual though. Of he's working with these psychics. They're getting blocked because he's an electrical engineer. He's doing experimentation in his lab with these people. And he's realizing that the signal is being broadcast or something. Mm -hmm. Slaps a radio antenna on his car. Yeah, it's very Goonies. It's very like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids where he puts this thing on his car and he's driving around town trying to trace down the signal of this yeah. jamming them. I just thought that was kind of a cool I feel visual. Like, doesn't that happen in the new Ghostbusters movie, Afterlife? Something like that where they're they're tracking something in the car signal of a oh right? yeah 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 sounds familiar that sounds right they go to the mine anyway they stole it from this book all right sign up for the later tier so you can listen to us talk about movies <laughs> future reports <laughs> <laughs> where did that come from <laughs> did you see that in the notes no. I think he just was referring to the uh, later tier. Yeah. Yeah. I just meant like <laughs> reports. future reports of movies reviews. <laughs> so great. So he continues his psychical research, but he's not getting anywhere on the investigation of what's going on at Montauk until 1984. He gets tipped off by a friend that the base is abandoned. It was indeed abandoned with debris strewn everywhere. I saw a fire extinguisher left amidst many scattered papers. The gate was opened as were the windows and doors of the buildings. This is not the way the military normally leaves a base. Yeah, interesting. And this, this is true. I mean, you look at the video evidence that took place later when the park is derelict. There's documents strewn everywhere. It looks like something intense has happened in certain places. There's destroyed cable networks and right. there's torch marks where it looks like they've been purposely destroyed, which actually takes place in his story later. It explains yeah. why that happens. But there's footage, John, we'll have this in the show notes, guys, of Preston Nichols leading people through in the 90s when this place is closed down, kind of sneaking in and filming all these. And it looks insane. And when he's pointing out different machines and stuff, it sounds like he obviously knows what he's talking about. It's like a two hour long tour of the different facility things. So he's re recalling what he's about to realize that he actually worked there. Yes, ooh, spoiler. So we don't know this yet, but it comes to his attention. We'll, we'll figure this out. There is some skullduggery going on. So he's in there, right? He finds a bunch of great equipment, high voltage gear, electronics. So he decides I'm going to contact the surplus disposal agency in Michigan to see if he can buy it, right? He talks to them, neither the military nor the GSA claim to know anything about any of the equipment in there. They don't know who owns it. Eventually, he's referred to a caretaker there, Mr. Anderson, of the Montauk Air Force Base. And he shows Preston around and basically says, like, you're welcome to take anything you can this trip. But if I ever see you again, you know, I work here as the caretaker, technically, even though you have somewhat permission, I have to kick you out. Right. So you get this time to come. But then he also says, by the way, I go get drinks at 7 p.m. every night. So kind of like saying, like, if you want to come back, I don't really care. Oh, right. Like a wink and a nod. So over time, Preston is returning and grabbing things, collecting gear and electrical equipment. Right. He also starts taking psychics there because his work has led him to believe that psychics get impressions of places and impressions of people. So he takes another trip to Montauk with a psychic assistant named Brian. They split up to explore. And this is what Preston has to say. 
I went into a building and saw a man who appeared to be homeless. He told me that he had been living in the building ever since the base was abandoned. He also said that there had been a big experiment a year earlier and that everything had gone crazy. Apparently, he'd never gotten over it himself. In fact, the man recognized me, but I had no idea who he was or what he was talking about. I did listen to his story. He said he had been a technician at the base and that he'd been AWOL. He had deserted the project just before the base had been abandoned. He spoke about a big beast appearing and frightening everyone away. He told me about the technical details of the machinery and how things worked. He also said something that was very strange. He told me that he remembered me well. In fact, I had been his boss on the project. Of course, I thought this was pure nonsense. I didn't know then that there was any truth to his story. This was just the beginning of my discovery that the Montauk project was real. Yes. Oh, and that's kind of important to note too, his discovery that it was real. Because prior to this, allegedly in the area, before he, even before he wrote his book, there were rumors of experiments going on at the base. Mind control experiments. Mind control experiments. Around town, you'd hear things whispered from people. Right. Yeah, it's definitely very weird to say, like, he remembered him as his boss. Oh, yes. Yeah. That would be, I mean. Super trippy. That's definitely a hard one to swallow. Exactly. It gets, I mean, this, this is, this is, the, is beginning. The, <laughs> the beginning. This is the beginning of the insanity, of the really intense sort of mind-boggling aspects yeah. to his story. And just as a little preview that we'll get more into in the expansion, guys, if you're not signed up, sign up, is uh, we'll get into some of these characters that are traveling through time. We haven't even talked about them, so I won't get into them yet, but it goes to like soul transference, shrinking people down, age regression to infant, and giving them to parents who'd lost a previous child. Back in time. Back in time. Characters that are currently in the 80s actually were in the 40s and then taken back and then so they could live another life with age regression. It gets really, really This crazy. is why it took so long to even figure out what the narrative was here, yeah. what the structure was. But let's continue on. So he's in this facility, right? He's in the base here in Montauk, the derelict base. And after he has this conversation with the homeless man, meets up with his friend Brian, the psychic guy, his assistant. And um, he's like... Can you do a reading right now? What are you picking up? He said, he starts speaking about the same things that the man was speaking of. He's speaking of other things too, like irregular weather patterns, mind control, animals being affected, crashing through windows. Again, this vicious beast comes up. So Brian is now confirming this allegedly. Mind control was the focus though. Mind control was the focus of the reading. So they grabbed all the gear they could and they left. Right. This is where they leave for the first time. So of course this is going to pique Preston's interest. And he continues his investigation around town. He ends up camping on the beach there. He's talking to people in bars, on the beach, on the road, anywhere he can. Trying to get the scoop, right? Right. And he's puzzled because people he's running into in Montauk are recognizing him, which, you know, confuses him. He gets reports of strange weather phenomena, as we mentioned, the psychic had kind of picked up on. Stories about animals coming into town in mass, mm. sometimes crashing through windows. He ends up contacting the chief of police, who allegedly reports you know, short bursts of crime in town that would happen for like a short period of time and then nothing. He talked about how large groups of teens would gather for two hours and then just disperse. Maybe strange, I don't know. Maybe we used party. to do that. We used to do that. But anyways, the information kept coming in, but everything was still a mystery to Preston. And things start to become clear to him when a man named Duncan Cameron arrives oh boy. at his home. And this is in November of 84. John, will you read this little bit here? Hey, it's our birthday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you think you were alive when Duncan arrived? Apparently. Maybe. Well, what day in November? What day in November? It was, was that it? month, that year. By the way, our P.O. box is for a present <laughs> for, for our birthday. The 15th of November, 1984. 
these young little lads were born into this cruel, dark world. <laughs> That's true. That's what they said at the time. To not That's what they said. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ready? Yes. In November of 84, another man appeared at my lab door. His name was Duncan Cameron. He had a piece of audio equipment, and he wanted to know if I could help him with it. He quickly became absorbed in the group of psychics I had working with me at the time. This endeavor was a continuation of my original line of research. Duncan showed a keen aptitude for such work and was extremely enthusiastic. I thought he was too good to be true and became suspicious of him. My assistant, Brian, felt the same way. He didn't like Duncan's sudden involvement and decided to go his own way. At one point, I surprised Duncan by telling him that I would be taking him to some place to see if he recognized it. I drove him to the Montauk Air Force Base. He not only recognized it, he told me what the purpose was for each of the various buildings. He knew exactly where the bulletin board and the mess hall was, and many other such minute details. Obviously, he had been there before. He knew the place like the back of his hand. He provided new information about the nature of the base and what his own function had been. Okay, and at this point, Duncan enters the transmitter building and he goes into this sudden trance and starts spitting out all this crazy information. So Nichols brings him back to the lab, applies techniques he claimed he'd learned to help Duncan unblock his memories. Well, we might get into that a little bit later, what those techniques were. Some interesting things there. But there were layers of programming, he said, layers that were now coming out of Duncan. A lot of information concerned Montauk, and many different things were revealed until finally, and this is why, maybe for good reason, Brian had been suspicious. Too good to be true, why is this guy here? Comes out of nowhere. He blurts out that he was programmed to find Nichols, to befriend Nichols, and to kill him. And then blow up the lab, destroying all of his research. Everything that he'd been working on regarding the Montauk project that he had suspected was going on, and all the telepathic research. Duncan appears more outraged by this, because he was obviously unaware. It's that Manchurian candidate sort of idea. So Duncan appears more outraged than Preston Nichols. Right. It's because he didn't know he was programmed to do this, allegedly. And at this point, he decides, I'm going to help you no matter what. Screw whoever programmed me. He switches sides. Right. A side that he didn't even know he was on. Sounds like Duncan was a part of this project and then now is being used as a cover-up tool yeah. to kill Preston, who's digging too much around the reality of what happened. Exactly. Can you just switch allegiances if you're a Manchurian candidate? Don't they like flip a switch and then you're like, nah, must destroy. <laughs> right, like a code name. It wasn't Zoolander. Or, you know, we used to, in the early days, talk about Project Monarch and, uh, you know, the butterfly symbolism and the trigger for celebrity mind control slaves, yeah, like that kind say, of stuff. like, pretty sandals. Exactly. Or what was the one with Al Roker? <laughs> At least remember Holy the Holy Ghost. Ghost. Yeah. Holy Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> he just stares at the TV Check screen. Check that out. Yeah, Google Al Roker, Holy Ghost. That is a weird video. We'll put the link in Very the show notes. Very strange. Definitely an MK Ultra agent. Yes, 100%. Possible. Anyway, but yeah, like what you're talking about, John, can you switch allegiances? So luckily for Preston, uh, Duncan wasn't activated because he was deprogrammed by Preston Nichols before he could be activated because he was, you know, he went into this trance. So he realizes he, he remembers suddenly, he re recalls what he was programmed to do, but he hasn't been triggered yet. Right. So weird. that saves him because the only reason he deprograms him is because he's spitting out all this stuff and realizes that he's been programmed somehow. Right. And so he deprograms in the way that he knows how, which we'll talk about later. Suspend the disbelief. Yes, exactly. Suspend your disbelief. Ding. Hey, we got to use it again. <laughs> so further work with Duncan reveals even more bizarre information. He reveals that he's been involved. Okay, we haven't even talked about this yet. Mm -hmm. But this is so important to the story. 
The Philadelphia experiment, super controversial, plays a huge role in this story, in this tale. And we'll get to what that exactly was, a short description of that for those who are unaware in just a moment. But let me continue on here. So he says that he had been involved in the Philadelphia experiment. He said that he and his brother Edward had served aboard the Eldridge as members of the crew. And of course, that would have been impossible for his age in the 1980s because it happened 20 years before he was born. Anyway, we'll get into all that. Yeah, as we're about to hear in a minute, the Philadelphia experiment is integral to the Montauk project and is directly connected. So they almost have to both exist. Yes. Okay, so Preston has an insight. A lot of things surfaced as a result of my work with Duncan. I started to remember things about the Montauk project and was now certain I'd been involved. I just didn't know how or why. The puzzle was slowly clearing up. I found Duncan to be an extremely operational psychic, and through him I was able to confirm new information. Okay, so at this point Nichols is under the impression that he was involved in the project somehow. He's, he's remembering what the man in the bunker, the homeless man, told him that he used to work there. Right, so he's remembering that. This seems to be what Duncan is hitting on the same things. So for some reason, unbeknownst to him and the reader, uh, he starts exploring where he's working, AIL. Maybe there's something that where he's working that can explain why he would have been working on the Montauk project or the secret clandestine operation right. going on. So he's currently in, well, we can say, quote, real life, but his job at this point, as far as his own reality that he knows and remembers, is for this defense contractor, AIL, right. on Long Island. And yeah, he's starting to consider, did I work at Montauk? Right. By the way, he calls it BJM in the, we talked about this before, but worried about threats from people, worried about possible litigation. Oh yeah, and we haven't said this, but this is also very important that the book itself says you can take this as fact or science fiction. That's what the co-author wrote, Peter Moon, which is a pseudonym. It was also Nichols said that too, but that's who wrote that part of the book. Nichols in further interviews says, the reason I said in the book that you can take it so is both, but that's important because a lot of people will read this and there will be blogs about it and say like, it's written as science fiction. The author even says you can take it as fact or science fiction, so you can basically throw it away. But it's clear in interviews with, with Preston Nichols and in further writings and stuff that it's put in there for, if you believe the story, it's put in there for their protection. Yeah. You know, even till his death, there were things that he couldn't divulge because of concerns of his safety. If he can give so much away, but not too much without basically really risking his life. It is interesting because you could say, you know, obviously allegedly these things, it is interesting because things later that were in the book, like, because I read the original version and when he would say like the Senator and I was like, oh, super descriptive, that's going to help your case. The Senator, random guy. Later when I was reading, I found the silver edition, which came out like 20 years later, kind of recently. And Peter Moon, the co-author, breaks down like, oh, this was the senator. Everybody in the area knew it was Barry Goldwater. We'll get to that. But at the time, he didn't want to use Barry's name. Right. And he wasn't sure how the family felt. Right. Just a lot of concern. That's why a lot of the details are so vague. So sometimes when it seems suspicious, it's because of concern about liability, concern about the threat of death. Anyway, let's continue on. Okay. So he, as I said, he starts exploring where he's working, right? AIL. Strange things are happening at his workplace. He starts getting mail, mail that he shouldn't be getting, mail addressed to him, but for people of a higher position. He starts having strange things happen where he's getting treated like he has a higher rank with other people. He does strangers on the base he doesn't know. One day he's exploring the grounds. He finds a building that's super secure, but he has a hunch and he goes up to it. Surprisingly, the guard not only lets him through, but gives him a badge to go in. He's exploring this area and it's like he knows where to go in this high security facility. And he ends up in an off, very nice office space And on the desk is a nameplate that says Preston Nichols, assistant director. So this is at AIL where he works, but Mm -hmm. he doesn't know that he's living another life. Right. At this defense contractor. Yes. 
he's discovering, although he's not sure yet exactly what's going on, that he is not only a technical engineer at AIL, but he is secretly, even to himself, working on the Montauk project in the defunct base down the road as an assistant director overseeing technical aspects of time portal creations, um, mind-altering experiments, mind-control experiments. This is where it gets crazy. This is where he starts to remember what's going on. Yeah, he said at one point that he could, he didn't realize while working at AIL, but if he wanted to, he's getting mail from, you know, this, this other version of himself, this like higher ranking version of himself that's apparently from the future. But he said if he wanted to talk to him, he could have just called him up on the switchboard at his office and he had no idea because they both existed there. But this is where it gets all complicated right. because there's time travel. and Yes. But this is where we need to step back to what we were just talking about, the Philadelphia Experiment. Yes. Because this is the impetus for the entire project of Montauk. Yeah. And all the preceding projects. So how did Montauk get here? How did it start? And why, why is the Philadelphia Experiment connected? So the Philadelphia Experiment allegedly happened during the verified real CIA project known as Project Rainbow. Now, that's interesting, too, if you know Stranger Things because of the Rainbow Room. Oh, yeah, right. All these Easter egg stuff thrown in. So Project Rainbow was the name given by the CIA to a research project aimed at reducing the radar cross-section of the Lockheed U-2 and lowering the chance that it would be detected and tracked by Soviet radars during its overflights of the USSR. Now, that's the official version of what it is. Right, that's during the Cold War. They were trying to find a way to cloak their high-flying aircraft so they could take pictures of Soviet Russia during the Cold War. Right, now that's the official story. You know, Nichols suggesting that this began much earlier and actually really goes back to Tesla in their early experiments. World War II. Yeah. And even earlier in the 30s. But then, yeah, World War II is where it really starts. And then during this project where they're trying to basically create what they call the electromagnetic bottle, where they can hide a naval ship using electromagnetics and Tesla coils to cloak it so that radar will bounce off or be absorbed by this energy, this field. The experiment of this is called the Philadelphia Experiment. Right. This is a whole other thing where it's written by another guy who initially proposed this thing, which is a whole other episode, but it's in this story. So it seems to be the case that the Rainbow Project was real, CIA project, but the fact that the Philadelphia Experiment took place is controversial, but it would have been inside this Rainbow Project. Yeah. Now, for those of you who don't know about the Philadelphia Experiment, this was the catastrophe of the Philadelphia Experiment. This is a description of the effects of what happened. And there's different ways that this is, the legend has gone. This comes from Neil Parks, who wrote Alternate Universes, Time Travel, and the Unexplained. So at this point, they're running this experiment. They're loading up the generators, the coils on the ship, and they're getting ready to test to see if they can make this ship invisible to the human eye. That's all they're trying well, to they're do. Well, they're trying to do radar. They didn't realize it would actually disappear. Right. So this is, this is what happens. The test had managed to render the entire ship out of phase with the surrounding universe, which is why it was able to travel from Philadelphia to Norfolk instantly. This phasing effect had drastic effects on the crew members. During the experiment, crew members found they could walk through solid objects, and when the field was shut off, the men were found embedded in the bulkheads, decks, and railings of the ship, with results so gruesome some men went mad. So they're stuck in parts of the ship. Afterwards, several crew members simply vanished. A few disappeared into thin air. One, later eating dinner with his family, rose up, walked through a wall. Honey, what are you doing? And was never seen again. Some men entered into what was called the, quote, freeze. This is where a man faded from view, unable to move, speak, or otherwise affect his surroundings. Initially, the freeze effect lasted only a few minutes to a few hours. 
Interestingly enough, invisible crewmen were still visible to other sailors who had survived the original experiment. After a while, the freeze effect lasted for days or months and became known as the deep freeze. Other terms include caught in the flow, caught in the push, get stuck, go blank, hell incorporated, or stuck in molasses. The deep freeze could drive a man insane in a very short order. So that's one description of the effects of the men who were allegedly involved on the USS Eldridge in the Philadelphia experiment. That's the most extreme I've ever read. I usually just hear like people were fused in the bulkheads when they came back from this disappearance. Right. The freeze time. and the deep freeze, I'm not sure where, you know, this specifically comes from, but there are people that have corroborated this. There's a guy on another ship, I think the USS Liberty. His name's Carl M. Allen. He alleges he actually saw the ship appear. Yeah, there's plenty of reasons to doubt the story as well. There's a lot of debate around it. That's for another episode. We're just including it here because this is a basis for the story and for the projects that continue. Yeah, exactly. So after this catastrophe, according to Preston Nichols, a man by the name of von Neumann, he's brought into the project. Now, he is a real guy. He was a mathematician from the Manhattan Project. Right. But he was brought in allegedly to work on the human factor. In other words... What caused this? Why did the men go mad? Right. To focus on the mental side of it, not necessarily the physical fusing of people into bulkheads or even leaving time. But why did people lose their minds? Right. And allegedly, not only was von Neumann working on this, but so was Albert Einstein and Nikolai Tesla. And it is true that Einstein and Neumann were both part of the, uh, I forget the name of the Institute at Princeton. So these people all work together at the same time. There is a tie-in historically with these people. So, I mean, it, you could see why some of this would be possible. And by the way, this von Neumann stuff and the, these later projects coming up, this is going back into Nichols lore. Right. Not the original Philadelphia Experiment lore, as far as I know. Correct. So the Philadelphia Experiment gets absorbed by the Phoenix Project, which later becomes Montauk. Phoenix Project has three parts to it. Basically, it becomes an umbrella term for rainbow. Stuff involving Wilhelm Reich and orgone and orgasm research we're not going to get into today. It gets, gets really wild. Oh, yeah. Project Phoenix. Yeah, so the Brookhaven Labs is working on Project Phoenix, the kind of partially the remnants of the Philadelphia experiment, the Rainbow, Project Rainbow. And at this point, they have to report to Congress, and they have been reporting, but I guess Congress pays attention now. They see some of the disturbing reports of what's going on, mind control experiments, all this kind of stuff. And at this point, you know, thinking, well, we are uncomfortable with this technology because what if someone does it to us? You know, people in Congress, they wouldn't be too happy. So Congress in 1969, disbands Project Phoenix over that concern of mind control could, could be used on them. But at this point, Brookhaven, the lab institute, has all this technology, all this research on their hands. What are they going to do? Right. They've got cloaking technology. They have mind control technology. And the mind control technology came from experiments using a chair and using alternating currents to somehow read the aura of a person and put it onto a screen. Yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves over there. Yeah, but that's Project Phoenix. So if we're going right. to mention Project Phoenix, anyways, we'll get to that later in the experiments. But so the point is the Brookhaven has all this stuff. They don't want to stop. You know, why would you? They need somewhere to go and they need financial help because Congress is no longer footing the bill. They have ways to pay for it. And this goes into a whole other part of the lore, but they talk to the military because they know the military can provide the security, the isolation, the protection essentially to keep working on this. And the military would love this kind of technology, mind control technology. They could stop a war before it starts, you know, conquer their enemies, whatever. So they talk to the military and the military's like, yeah, right down the road. We have the perfect place. We have the perfect place, the Montauk Air Force Base. We can retrofit the radar tower. It's perfect for what you need for oscillating radio signals and whatever. So that's where they move it. It has a dish that can broadcast 425 to 450 megahertz signal, which is what you need to manipulate the mind. So this is when Project Montauk officially starts in the 70s, and that's where we'll pick it up after the break. What's coming up in the expansion? 
Okay, so Cheer. you guys are about to hear a preview clip from the expansion. The expansion is going to be wild, as they say. Literally an expansion of this episode. Yeah, it's more, you know, it's more about the crazier elements of what happens in this episode. Everything from reptilian abductions with the real L, as I call her. Future predictions <laughs> from, we haven't even gotten into this yet, but uh, in the Philadelphia Experiment, Duncan, who we've already met, and his brother, Ed, they're sent to the future during the Philadelphia Experiment, allegedly, to 2137, and they learn about the war. Now, this is interesting. There's a war coming, guys, between 2000 and 2025, which is right now. This was predicted, again, in like the early 90s or whatever. The war between Russia and China and the West. Yeah, and well, it creates... It's definitely not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, that combined with cataclysms and stuff end up creating a devastating world. And when they jump to the year 2137... They tell them about this and like they're basically rebuilding at that point, but there's martial law, there's different... In 2137? That's what they jump to, but they talk about when this all happened. That's when, a huge chasm. Yeah. Time. From 2025 oh, yeah. to 2137, things break down that slowly? No, no, things break down after 2025, but it takes like 100 years to get back to the point where they have hospitals because they end up in the hospital after the Philadelphia Experiment in 2137. Anyways, that's a, that's, it's a whole other thing yeah. that's crazy, but it'll well, be really interesting. Like We're also going to go to Mars through portals, potentially, and all the way to 6,000-something AD with a golden horse statue in the middle of a decaying city and what the children have to read, the time-traveling children have to read off the horse. And we'll also hear clips from Preston Nichols, who John's been voicing here, as well as Al Balick describing some of the technology and the future predictions, just so you can hear their own voices in the expansion. So, I mean, guys, and we'll talk more about the show. And, and we'll probably talk about Stranger Things. Guess what, guys? We are taking a break. Yes. That's true. So we will be gone for a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. It's a great time. If you are missing us to become an expansion member, we will have yes, yes, yes. a host of interesting topics to cover. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's really covered. not what I meant to say. We have tons of content over there for you. So if you miss us, I think we will be dropping something for the expansion members. Maybe a live stream during the break. Mm -hmm. But we will be doing something for you guys over on the expansion side. So if you miss us during this break, definitely head over and help support the show, help keep us going and get your brain holes filled. Yes! Yeah, get your hands on over 60 fresh episodes, just as rich, just as beautifully sound design and investigated. Yes. Hell yeah. That's how I will put that. Do it. All right, check out this preview of the expansion. Access granted. F is just ahead of me at the next hallway. F keeps going straight with the two guys but we turn to the right and walk a few feet to an elevator door. Terry has a credit card and puts it into a slot next to the door. The slot is vertical and there are two lights above it, one red, one green. The door opens and we go inside, but there are no buttons to push. We're going down. Then the door opens and it's much darker here and it smells funny, like a basement with a cesspool overflow problem. We turn right and go a few feet, then turn left. I'm so cold. There's a door on my left. Terry opens it. This room is so dark I can hardly see. There's almost no furniture in it. There's something that looks like a padded table. They help me on it and lay me down. Now I'm really cold. One guy says, Do we just leave her here? And Terry answers, She's not going anywhere. They leave the room. I can't seem to move anything but my eyes. Why am I here? I don't like this. Over to my left, something moves. It's coming closer. I can see it better. Oh my God! 
It's a monster! Now, at this point, she jumps out of the chair in the hypnotic regression session because she's so terrified and overwhelmed with emotion. Finally, the doctor gets her to calm down and she wants to continue. Yeah, think of that scene from that, what's that film with the owls, the alien abduction with the fourth kind? The fourth kind, where the people are freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. Then she continues. What I see is a creature about six to seven feet tall. His ears are large and pointed at the top. His eyes are bright yellow gold and seem to glow. He has pointy teeth and a large wrinkle on his forehead. And he has a tail. He's coming towards me. I have never been so scared in my life. He comes to the foot of the table. When the cool light of the blood moon beckons, the midnight call won't be ignored. And every creature of the night looking for love needs the right scent to snare their heartthrob. In partnership with Ruddy Man Grooming, the brothers of the Belief Hole have curated Night Stalker. A beard oil scent that blends the masculine earthy forest aroma with the seductive notes of tobacco and vanilla mm. for a subtly sweet balance that will have your partner purring late into the evening. Oh. However the night moves you, Night Stalker Beard Oil is your loyal companion. Yes! So head over to Beliefful.com and click on the Night Stalker button. Available in beard oil, bombs, and butters. And don't forget to use the code BELIEFHOLE for 15% off your purchase. That's BELIEFHOLE, one word, all lowercase. Night Stalker. For a superior breed of beard. Hey, holers, we're back. Holers? Beliefflings, you mean? Holes. Remember we had that debate? Such a massive Remember debate. The belief warrior sting we had? Belief warrior, warrior. I don't think we ever actually did that. Oh, really? Oh, wait, that was part of a, that stinger. She's a lady of adjectives. Oh, for Cat. <laughs> I really embarrassed to listen to it the other day. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let John do these. You're like a knockoff Jack Black. <laughs> yes, welcome back, holers, beliefflings. However you identify. special, thank you. Oh, we do. I almost forgot. We have another Skywheel Rider. Skywheel Rider. Skywheel Rider. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Never gets old. Oh, look at slap. Welcome our newest Sky Whale rider, Rene Benitez, or Little Elm Tree. I think he's a, a woodworker. Sure it's not Benitez? That could be Benitez. Either way, he's a wonderful man. Yes. Either way, thank you so much for supporting the show. We really, really appreciate it. That actually, being that tier really does help us yeah. to stay on the air. You're yeah. literally a top tier guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, you can sign up to be an expansion member for $5.50 right now. But then there are other tiers. Black Eyed Cool Kids is $7, gets you a shout out on the show at the end of the episode. But then there are people that go above and beyond and either become Dogman Whispers for 10 bucks or the, the highest tier, which is our friend Renee at 51st Skywheel Rider. Yes. Thank you so much. But guess what? At the end of the day, we're going to be doing all you guys that have been waiting all the Dogman Whispers. Shout out people of interest. Black Eyed Cool Kids. We're going to shout you out today. And thank you for being patient. Yes. We love you and we really do appreciate the help. It, it is massively important to yeah. us. Yes. Absolutely. For the few of you that are left that signed up earlier before we started the new tiers that still get a thank you at the end, hanging the rule will get to you probably on the next episode. Yeah. So another great reason to be an expansion member is because during the break that we are taking... Over the next few weeks, we will be doing a live stream just for expansion members. And it's going to be epic and you don't want to miss it. Absolutely. And you'll have access to everything else that we do. So great time to sign up. Yeah, it's a ton of fun. You can see previously done fun. on YouTube. Summer fun just for you guys. So tune into that. That will be 
Friday, July 22nd at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time. Looking forward to seeing you there. And without further ado, back to the show. So let's get back into the wonderful world of Montauk. The beautiful land and the strange things, the stranger things that took place there. Allegedly. 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 I was thinking about telling this episode, Allegedly. (laughs) There's a lot of allegedly in this episode. But it's a fantastic story, that's for sure. So when we left for the break, we were talking about the progression of the projects that went all the way from, allegedly, the Philadelphia Experiment in the 1940s and even earlier, all the way up through the other projects leading us to the Montauk Project. Now let's talk about some of the technology they were working on. This is really the meat of the the fascinating experimentation that was going on. The things that bend the mind and conjure concepts of science fiction and horror, for sure. So let's begin with the Montauk chair. Jeremy, tell us a little about the Montauk chair. This is integral to the experiments going on there. So as Preston Nichols describes in the book, the Montauk chair, the technology was developed initially in the 1950s by ITT, which was the International Telephone and Telegraph Company. They developed a sensor technology that at some point eventually was built into the chair. Right. And the technology essentially was a mind-reading technology. It could pick up on electromagnetic functions of, of the human brain and translate that into an understandable format. The digital representation. And they go into the book, they break down using the Cray-1 supercomputer, which was first installed at Los Alamos Laboratories. Also, allegedly, I mean, if it happened here, this would have been years before the construction of it. So again, it's like earlier tech. Yeah, the timeline's kind of weird because he references in the book 1950s, but of course, their experiments with the chair was going on in the 70s and the Cray-1 computer was built in the 70s mm-hmm. and the IBM 360, which is eventually what displayed the digital image. So right. you have all this technology, all of it seems to be relevant to the time, but the timeline's kind of confusing. Could this have even happened? Computers, I mean, this computer was like five tons or something. It was a supercomputer, gigantic, you know, from the 70s, but could it have processed this kind of information? Right. Maybe with the help of a telepath, potentially? Oh. Maybe the help with Syrians. Yes, aliens. From Sirius. Allegedly, that's one of the ideas Preston Nichols posits. How is this possible to project human thoughts just using these computers? Eventually, they use a telepath, but he suggests that it, there was suggestion that it may have been help from, quote, extraterrestrials. Yeah, it seems like there is, throughout the Montauk Project conspiracy, there are points in the development of the technology where extraterrestrials come in and aid. And right. that seems to be a little bit, when I'm, when I'm reading it, a little bit of a catch-all. Like, this worked because, well, aliens helped, and then with much hard work and computer crunching, humans yeah. were able to continue the project. So, you know, suspend your disbelief yeah. for this, but there's a lot of technical kind of jargon and some would say gibberish in the book and some say it's it's all gobbledygook of course it wouldn't be the first time that we've discussed the ideas of alien involvement in technological growth on earth that is not that out there of an idea so again it's all these different grabbing or different inner earth civilizations right we've talked about this before so yeah. again not completely impossible right but regardless they had this chair the montauk chair as it was called more detail in the book on how it was constructed. This is something the Montauk Project, after hearing about it from ITT, they wanted this technology because they wanted to be able to create a mind-reading machine that could also be a transmitter. Right. You could project, hopefully project realities. They basically were concerned about the Philadelphia experiment, what happened to the men, and they wanted to be able to use the cloaking technology, even time travel, which is what they believe the Philadelphia experiment had done, 40 years or 12 seconds, depending on what story you believe, But that ability to travel through time and the effect of the mind warp on the people, the destruction of the mind because of the way that, you know, traveling through time is set up because according to Preston Nichols, 
you have a, what's it called? A uh, time, time reference? Time reference. Each person is born with a time reference that keeps you anchored in your timeline. And through the Philadelphia experiment, that was lost and people went crazy. So the idea is that this chair, eventually with a telepath involved or a psychic of some kind, they could project a reality around the minds, basically insulating anyone involved in time travel or in these kind of portals to protect them. It all sounds super out there. Yeah. It also becomes nefarious, not just protecting people, but how do we control people's minds using this chair? And that, that comes up later. Oh yeah. Because in late, in the late seventies, 77, the transmitter was eventually used to reproduce thought forms. Right. They started, well, specifically Duncan Cameron, who again is the guy that meets Preston Nichols in the future later on. And he starts recalling this stuff. He allegedly was eventually able to pull things from the ether, manifest objects, thought forms into reality, create realities affect the minds of others eventually using this chair and this alien computer system allegedly alien yes yeah so let's let's talk a little bit about that let's talk let's hear from preston nichols what exactly duncan was doing in this chair and what was happening here uh jonathan what duncan thought of as a subjective reality would be created as an objective reality either solid or transparent depending on the circumstances For example, he could think of an entire building, and that building would appear on base. This type of experimentation was routine. Now they wanted to see what they could do with it. The first experiment was called the seeing eye. With the lock of a person's hair or other appropriate object in his hand, Duncan could concentrate on the person and be able to see as if he was seeing through their eyes, hearing through their ears, and feeling through their body. He could actually see through other people anywhere on the planet. This style of experimentation was extensive, but I don't know how far it was taken. It is truly incredible that such a feat could be accomplished. However, the agenda employed was more sinister than incredible. They were interested in controlling how human beings think. That description reminded me of X-Men, where um, Professor Xavier's in, in a chair. In that dome thing, I forget what it's That's called. That's true, yeah. And he's trying to find other mutants and he's seeing around the world and seeing through people's eyes. Anyways, but the idea is called witnessing. It's a psychic idea. The idea of holding an object and seeing or sensing something about a person oh, right. using a lock of hair or a personal artifact. But this is when, yes, when they mentioned the nefarious aspect of this, controlling people's mind, this is when Duncan becomes involved in these exercises of putting his thoughts into targets' minds, including the community at large, the community at Montauk. And this is one of the conspiracy theories around the story people start experiencing changes in their perception or changes in their mood based on when the tower is active. And just a quick summary here. I thought this was interesting. This comes from an interview with The Sun where Preston sort of draws into focus what we just discussed in this chair and what we're about to discuss regarding time travel. Regarding time travel. He says, quote, We began to look at how you could interface minds with computer systems, but it soon evolved into developing a mind control device. Later, it was discovered that if the individual whose mind was powering the machine, in this case, Duncan, could think of other time periods, this machine could generate a vortex there, essentially a time machine. And this is where we get into the beginning of the time travel experiments with this chair, with Duncan, with the psychic portal that he's opening and using derelicts around town, kidnapping them for inclusion unwillingly into these experiments. And I've got a quick thing I want to read from his book here. There were also other psychics, but Duncan was the first they had used, and he was in the chair 90% of the time the system was in operation. By this time, the computer system was huge and was housed inside the control room next to the radar tower. Duncan would start out sitting in the chair, then the transmitter would be turned on. His mind would be blank and clear. He would then be directed to concentrate on an opening 
in time from, say, 1980, which was the current time, to 1990. At this point, a hole, or time portal, would appear right in the center of the Delta T antenna. You could walk through the portal from 1980 to 1990. There was an opening that you could look into. It looked like a circular corridor with a light at the other end. The time door would remain open as long as Duncan would concentrate on 1990 and 1980. I've been told by those who entered the tunnel that it looked like a spiral, similar to science fiction style renderings of a vortex. When outside the tunnel, it looked like you were looking through space, from one circular opening through space to a circular but little bit smaller window at the other end. From 1980 to late 1981, the time function was calibrated. At first, the time portals would drift away. One might go through the time portal and come back out in 1960. But when one went back to find it later, although it was still being tracked in real time, the portal would not appear where it should have been. One could easily get lost in time and space. And many did. Allegedly. And many did. It was routine to create a tunnel, grab somebody off the street, and send them down. Most of the time, these people were winos or derelicts, whose absence wouldn't create a furor. If they returned, they would make a full report on what they had encountered. Most of the winos used in the experiments were sobered up for a week before entering a portal, but many didn't make it back. We don't know how many people are still floating around in time, whenever, wherever, and however. So obviously, bold claims here. Yeah, and this, speaking of the people that were taken, in the expansion, we'll get more into the Montauk boys, the kids that were allegedly abducted or that have come forward, lured into participating between the ages of nine and 18. But there's witness testimony in the expansion from alleged people that were involved, kids that were involved. So definitely gets interesting. Okay, so all this experimentation is going on, the time travel, everything is coming to a head, right? Then in 1983, something very strange happens. And the date is significant. It's August 12th, 1983 exactly 40 years to the day of the Philadelphia experiment. Right. And it appears that at this point, the machine, as he says, locks up with the Philadelphia experiment. Suddenly the equipment appeared to drop into sync with something else. Yeah. And that is the USS Eldridge during the Philadelphia experiment. Because according to Nichols, time works as far as these kind of anchored vortexes where they could travel reliably between times. There will always be a link up at... 20-year intervals because of the alleged 20-year biorhythmic pattern of the Cycles Earth. of the Earth. Yeah, yeah. pulses of the Earth. There's a lot. There's a lot in this book, a lot of diagrams, a lot of but stuff. But the key that, is every 20 years, this, right. this can happen and allows for a stable wormhole, essentially. That's why we get it between the Philadelphia Project in 43 and the uh, Montauk Project in 83. That's funny because if you think about like the things that would come later, like Back to the Future, 20 years, I guess that was before. I'm not sure, I guess, but uh, Dark, same thing. There's these 20-year decades or whatever. Yeah, these sync, these alignments of time where you can move through. Anyway, yes, interesting. But how does it all come to a head, right? This is where it comes to the head. And this is where that we keep hearing about through Preston and through rumors in town of this beast that was unleashed on the facility that inevitably ended up closing down the project, right? This beast that was loosed throughout the facility. And this is that story. Three colleagues and myself had been privately voicing misgivings about the project over a period of months. We had talked about the pitfalls of dealing with time and how this might affect the karma of the planet. We hoped the project would truncate itself. Consequently, our little cabal created a contingency program that only Duncan could activate. It was designed to crash the entire project. We finally decided we had enough of the whole experiment. The contingency program was activated by someone approaching Duncan 
while he was in the chair and simply whispering, The time is now. At this moment, he let loose a monster from his subconscious, and the transmitter actually portrayed a hairy monster. It was big, hairy, hungry, and nasty, but it didn't appear underground in the null point. It showed up somewhere on the base. It would eat anything it could find, and it smashed everything in sight. Several different people saw it, but almost everyone described a different beast. It was either nine feet tall or 30 feet tall, depending on who saw it. I personally believe it was about nine or 10 feet in height. No one was in any frame of mind to calmly and collectively analyze its exact nature. It was terrifying. <laughs> That's kind of interesting because I did some other research and I used Albert Rosales' collection of humanoid encounters, oh, reports right. from everywhere. And at this time, I found sightings of something in Montauk. Oh, around this time? Yeah, they vary slightly, but that's the general height is 9 to 10 feet. Hairy or covered in some kind of yellow ooze of some kind, but just odd timing for this thing to appear independently of the Montauk project. And are you going to talk about some of those reports in the expansion? Yeah, I'll, I'll do cover that a little bit in the expansion as well as it ties into the real the real L, as I call her. I forget her name right now. Miriam, maybe? Michelle Guerin. But that'll be in the expansion and her experiences with an underground reptilian. Terrible things that happened to her, uh, but her eventual training into psychic work, just like the character Ellen Stranger Things has. Oh, also in the expansion, we will touch on the area of Montauk and the alleged mystical properties of Turtle Cove. Yeah, we didn't even get into that. There's all kinds of ley lines, suggestions of lore, allegedly. Alleged native lore with the Montauk people or the Montaquet people, the Indians there. Thomas Jefferson ties in <laughs> Rosicrucians. I mean, it gets real crazy yeah. and we've corroborated as, as much as we could, but it gets real interesting in the expansion, guys. We'll dissect that in the expansion. But after this beast unleashes its fury, this subconscious beast into manifestation yeah. on the ground. So this, everything is going crazy at this point. The vortex is spiraling. It's locked up with the Philadelphia experiment. You can see the you know, soldiers through the portal. Duncan has manifested this creature from the ether, the beast from the id, as they call it, that's terrorizing above ground right now. So at this point, it's Preston Nichols' job as a part of this cabal's plot, their plan to shut this down. With everything going crazy, his supervisor orders the crew to shut off the generators. Shut it down! To stop whatever phenomena is going on at this point. This doesn't work. So then they unsuccessfully attempt to shut down the transmitter at Montauk. They go to the power station and disconnect the base from the Long Island Lighting Company, but the power keeps going. Then they go to the power station and cut the wires leading into the ground from the big transformers. And this is important. Nichols puts an acetylene torch, if that's how you pronounce it, acetylene torch on his back and cuts the wires going into the ground. And finally, Nichols cuts enough of the machinery part that the transmitter just groans and stops. All the lights go off. They'd done it. It was at this point that the portal closed and the beast stopped moving and faded back into the ether. And if you watch Nichols's home video footage of the base going through it, he points out places where the torch was used to cut through into the electronics to stop the project from happening. It's a really interesting, convoluted story, but there's some kind of video evidence that he has. If you really watch it, it tells a story. Is it real? Is it not? Evidence is there, but it's up for you to decide, I suppose. Yes. I'll briefly mention, as I said, the story gets much crazier. The locking up of this time portal in 1983, because of the biorhythmic undulations, I guess, of the earth, the, the pattern of every 20 years, this lockup can happen because of the biorhythmic mm -hmm. patterns of the earth, 1983 to 1943, locks up with the Eldridge, August 12th, 1943. But the weirdest part is that on the ship, 
we've been talking about Duncan, the psychic who is recalling all these memories. The one in the chair, the one who came to Preston's house and tried to kill him, then befriended him, right. and worked with him. Well, all this information comes from a man by the name of Al Balick, who is Duncan's brother, Ed. Claims to be. So Ed Cameron <laughs> and Duncan Cameron are both allegedly on the Philadelphia experiment, on the ship, the USS Eldridge. And that's how Duncan Cameron gets involved in the first place, right? It's a time paradox. It's a time paradox. But the reason Ed Cameron gets to become Al Balick is because unlike his brother Duncan, who comes in and becomes a part of the experiment, right? And is this telepath or whatever, Ed Cameron, Al Balick decides to stay in 1943. And this is after they've been sent to the future, had their adventures in 2137 that I mentioned with the experience. It goes all crazy. But the point is, Ed, Duncan's brother, who Duncan we know, Ed stays back in time, but eventually gets pulled to the future in 1947. Into Montauk. They bring him to Montauk. Then they age regress him and shrink his body down to the size of an infant. One years old. This is Ed Cameron, Duncan's brother. They shrink him down to the size of a one-year-old, wipe his memory, and give him to Mr. and Mrs. Balick because they'd lost a, a child like the year before. So raise this, this infant. So he grows up, joins the Navy again, has no memory of the Montauk Project, but ends up eventually coming back to the base and working as a contractor, just like Preston Nichols. And then slowly starts to recall his memories after being sent to kill Preston Nichols. Anyway, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, if we talk about it in the expansion, we'll explain that further. But basically just to say, there is a time paradox where a man who is real, Al Balik, claims to be in person who was born in 19... 20, 16 initially, and then 2016. Anyways, there's a time paradox. He's this guy's brother. It's too much to get into right now, but we should say that it is a thing that is involved in this story. It's, it's actually a really interesting story where there's a time loop where they end up coming back through the Philadelphia experiment. And the only reason that this whole project Montauk exists and these other Phoenix projects was because of their trip through time that we haven't talked about. It's too much to get into, which is why I wasn't going to bring it up here. We'll talk about the expansion. Um, but yes, that, yes, any questions on it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you don't need to know much about that to know that the Beast, they released, that was part of the reason, all this to say is it's part of the reason why they decided too many time crimes were happening. The fact that there were now two people who were the same person existing in the same time space coming through from the Philadelphia right. experiment, let's shut this baby down, shut her down, let's release the Beast. That's one of the reasons why they released yeah. it. Okay, that's that's kind of to bring in that into... So I'm sh that's like where the Demogorgon comes from, probably, that idea? Or the, is yes, that what it's yeah, called? exactly. Yeah, Demogorgon, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's would be the analogy. Would right. be, this is the Beast that... I mean, obviously, there's a lot more literary license in the actual yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's also, obviously, the Demogorgon, we mentioned before, that's comes from Dungeons and Dragons, right? right? Oh, right, right. But what's interesting... I didn't even realize that, and even the new one. Are they all... Was Fechna? there... Because you weren't cool enough yeah. to play it like we were. So in each season, is there a new Dungeons and Dragons character? Vecna, and I think the Mind Flayer. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that also Dungeons and Dragons? Pretty sure, yeah. We were more Vampire the Masquerade, so I didn't do too much of the D&D. &D but anyways, what's really interesting, John, is when I first started researching this, I was trying to figure out who is this Duncan guy, Duncan Cameron, because you know he existed in two different times. His story gets real weird, but I found a really great breakdown of him. And I'm reading this, like it's finally a clear description of who he is and everything. And then at the bottom, it says, how to play Duncan in a campaign. It's like, what? <laughs> and then I look at it and I realize this is a role-playing guide for the Montauk Project. Based off D&D &D rules. Based off, well, the hero system. Weird, again, so you're going to say the hero system, like Camp Hero. But this role-playing game about Montauk came out right after Preston Nichols' book, but way, way before Stranger Things. Right. So there's a role-playing game which is such a theme in Stranger Things about the Montauk Project with these characters. You wonder if they played that. You wonder if maybe the Duff Brothers played it or, you know, yeah. 
I've heard about the role playing game because role playing is such a part of it, or it could just be a synchronicity, right? Which is very strange. Interesting, yeah. interesting stuff, though. Very interesting. Good job, guys. That was a lot to present. Oh, we're almost done. We are at the evidence. We're going to discuss the reality, the possible reality, what evidence came about. So, regarding what happens after this, you know, he's recovered all these memories. He knows what he thinks is the truth about this beast being unleashed. This whole project, he realizes. They need to do something, right? We know this stuff. They're starting to get people visiting them. They're starting to grow concerned about safety. They decide to give a lecture. They decide to start publishing material about this. A small group of them, Preston and his other allies in this truth campaign, you could call it. Duncan and Al Bailey. Yeah. So in 86, they go to what's called the United States Psychotronics Association in Chicago, and they create an uproar. Luckily for them, they're able to get in contact with someone in the United States Senate who believes their story, or at least is curious enough to investigate on his own right. into the experiences that they've had and into their crazy story. And this is what he says about that in his book. We decided to feed the information to the federal government. One of my associates knew the nephew of a senior senator from the Southwest. The nephew, who we will call Lenny, worked for the senator. We gave the information to Lenny, who passed it to his uncle. This information included pictures of the orders given to the different military personnel which we had found strewn about the base. The senator did a personal investigation and verified that military technicians had in fact been assigned to the base. The senator also discovered that the base was decommissioned, derelict, and mothballed since 1969. Having served his country as an Air Force general, he was particularly interested to know why Air Force personnel were working on a derelict base, and where did the money come from to open up the base and run it. After they did their own investigation and saw the pictures and documents we supplied them, there was no question that the base had been active. They verified that Fort Hero, which is the name of the original World War I base that surrounds the entire area of the Air Force Base, and Montauk, were indeed derelict and were simply listed as property held by the General Services Administration since 1970. So this is, this is what really interested, who we later learned to be Barry Goldwater, senior senator at the time, but eventually candidate for president, who would have had my vote, by the way. So he gets involved in this because he wants to know, he's ex-Air Force, why are there active Air Force, but why is the base on record as being derelict? So he spends time looking into this. There's rumors around town that there's some senator peeking through fences. This is all confirmed. And at the time, even though in the book, it says the senator, people in the association and people in town knew who it was. So he completes his investigation. He doesn't find any trace of government funding. He can't find any confirmation of where the money came from to run this facility. And there's no oversight committees, no payments going. So there is a rumor that it was Nazi gold. There was a train. Some outside funding that wasn't government, right? Right. But we do know this was running. We don't know how. There was no paper trail, which is very strange. So eventually he, he retires. At the time of the books published in 92, allegedly his nephew tells Preston that he did reopen the investigation into it, but there was no new information. Right. And what I find fascinating about the allegation that Barry Goldwater was the senator involved in shutting this down is because, and I looked this up online, Barry Goldwater was involved. There's a document online. It's basically a document about the joint hearing before the Select Committee on Intelligence on MKUltra, the CIA's program of research and behavioral modification which was held on August 3rd, 1977. Right, so he would have interest in this because, because he, was, he was the vice chairman on the uh, reviewing of the operation. The Select Committee on Intelligence reviewing MK Ultra, yeah. which is a very similar program and allegations the same proven. So he was aware of this going on with MK Ultra. He was a part of the group that shut it down essentially or right. you know, oversaw the shutting down. 
you know, the tisk tisk about what you're doing with this project of Galdry. He's very much obviously aware of that. So it would make sense that he would be the one or a guy involved in looking into the Montauk project and at right. least believing that it, it could be happening. Exactly. So I found that really interesting. Um, and there one quote from the this document, uh, from the hearing rather on MKUltra is quote, the records reveal a far more extensive series of experiments than had previously been thought. 86 universities or institutions were involved. New instances of unethical behavior were revealed. The CIA's program of human experimentation of the 50s and 60s violated the American people's trust throughout the program. And again on the day, the bulk of the agency's records were destroyed in 1973, hence the cover-up. So Goldwater, knowing this, would have been very interested to hear about the allegation of MKUltra, and it makes sense that he would be there investigating. Especially a project that allegedly starts right when the other project he shut down ended. Right. Just very interesting. Uh, he was an interesting guy, too. He had allegedly had this really fascinating discussion with an army colonel about what was held in the Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, right. Where he had said, basically, the guy had said... E.T. Uh, craft or something. And he asked him about it, and the guy said he'd never seen him mad in his entire life, but he was furious. He said, if you ever ask me again about that, I'm never speaking to you again. I think the government does know. Barry Goldwater, senator, presidential candidate, and believer. I can't back that up, but I think that... Uh, at Wright Patterson Field, if you could get into certain places, you'd find out what the Air Force and the government knows about UFOs. From his ham radio shack outside Phoenix, the senator disclaims direct knowledge of UFOs, but he does confirm a disturbing story about an exchange with General Curtis LeMay. Reportedly, a spaceship landed. It was all hushed up, quieted. I called Curtis LeMay and I said, General, uh, I know we have a room at Wright Patterson where you put all his secret stuff. Can I go in there? I've never heard him get mad, but he got madder than hell at me, cussed me out, said, don't ever ask me that question again. Anyway, let's wrap it up with what is the evidence, the recent evidence that has come to light? Is there any truth to the story? insofar as uh, physical investigation. Yeah. Recently, there was a, relatively recently, there was a film documentary done called Dark Files. And right. I think the most interesting thing to come out of this was the the VHS tapes that were recorded in the 90s from these kids that would essentially hop the fence and record around. And one guy who really, really documented this stuff and kept track of all the records of what he found was a guy by the name of Brian Minnick. And now he filmed in different places. I think one of the most important places he filmed was inside what was called the Acid House. Right. Montauk boys who had come out allegedly had said that allegedly they were given mind-altering drugs for these experiments for mind control. Like LSD. And said that there was a sunken house where there were rooms that had hallucinogenic patterns, things like that, um, psychedelic patterns. And this is outrightly denied by anyone who was ever involved at the base. But what is found in this video footage from the early or late 90s, early 2000s, it's this room in this house. And in this room, and at first, at first glance, it looks like graffiti, right? It looks like this doesn't look like a wallpaper or pattern or anything. But on close inspection, I don't know if, it's, if you can see it in this picture. But look, if you look at the ceiling, I have a close-up of this. They, and they make this point in the documentary. It's a clean ceiling. It's not someone in there spray painting. The paint goes all the way up to the wall or all the way up to where the ceiling meets the ceiling, but the ceiling has no paint on it. You know, the idea being if these, these weird psychedelic-ish paint blobs and shapes on the wall, if it was just graffiti, you'd see marks of graffiti on the wall as well. But I think even more importantly, the outlet covers, uh, we'll have screenshots of this guys. The outlet covers are over top 
of these patterns and markings. In other words, the graffiti does not cross over onto the outlet covers, the light switch covers, right. meaning that this was put there purposely then had put the covers put on afterwards. So right. it couldn't be graffiti uh, from further days. And it looks very vague, blurry blobs of color. But after 80, or I'm sorry, after 20, 20 years, 20 years, 30 years or whatever, uh, who say, knows what it looked like originally, but they're yeah. definitely, and some, they interviewed some researchers in psychedelics and said, yeah, I have that here. Um, so when the psychic researchers were asked to look at these pictures, two psychedelic researchers, one David Nutt and Robert Carhart Harris, they were shown these images of this quote acid house and these rooms in here and the wallpaper pattern. And they both said that these do look like psychedelic patterns. One, one of the other three said he didn't think so, but these two did. These were definitely psychedelic patterns. So just used. An interesting. There's also wallpaper, John, that we don't have in here. We'll have all these in the show notes, uh, these images, but I thought that was one of the most interesting parts. The next thing that they bring up in the documentary is they do, remember Jurassic Park and they do the first one, the good one? where they do the ground penetrating radar in the dig where Sam Neill is doing the dig and they're looking for mm -hmm. velociraptors. That's a different version of that technology though. Right, older version. Yeah. But uh, the more updated version, it's still ground penetrating radar. They find underneath the base and you got to remember the official story from the government. Official blueprints show nothing underground. There's nothing con ever constructed underground. That's the official story. They find a lot of really compelling evidence that indeed there are structures underground, large rooms. Well, even Brian Minnick's video footage mm -hmm. shows them going underground under the radar tower, right. which the blueprints show nothing there except for support beams. But you see him going down this, you know, square cut, probably like two foot thick cement down into this gigantic room underneath. And then he said that when he was down there, you could hear machines still operating on the other side of the wall. And there were areas where it looked like... Like a vault door. There was like a vault door handle, but it was locked shut. Areas that looked like they'd been sealed or cemented. In yeah. other words, there was something else going on down there, but it was covered up. Right. And one of the, the other damning things that he found there, uh, he doesn't have this today, but this guy seems very believable, by the way, if you ever watch his documentary, we'll have a link to Brian. He said that in the documents they found strewn around, they found documents that were reporting food purchases of $80,000 a month during the late 80s, which is a period where this should have been completely shut down. Just some security personnel. Receipts for food for people in this allegedly defunct and not used base for $80,000 of food a month for some secret operation allegedly going on underground. Anyway, again, really, he lost that paperwork. Right. They threw it up when they were running from the, the, the security. security. Guy seems super believable though. We'll have him linked in there. The one caveat I want to say about the stuff underground, there is a guy who's interviewed on the news who works there, who used to work there, Old guy, he's got like the little old guy shirt on. Old guy, polo. He's like a tour, tour guy, but he used to work there and he said, not even talking about the conspiracy, but he was just describing the batteries, these big guns, right? And he said, yeah, these big guns were put here to defend from the Nazi invasions. Uh, and in case they did come in, they had tunnels between underground that would connect these gun batteries so that people could communicate and get easily from battery to battery, just saying it nonchalantly. There's a lot of people who used to work there say, well, yeah, there's stuff underground. The reason, and John, like you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the reason you might not have detailed and public blueprints is because who knows if they ever want to use them again or, you know, some things they just want to keep secret to keep secret for military purposes, which I think is totally possible. I think the damning things, though, are the fact that it seems like something was still running with a lot of personnel underground that we don't know. I mean, I'm right. not saying that I think personally that it was time travel, child abduction that was going on there. But is it possible that people were being taken for experimentation? Why not? It happened a few years before this in 80 other facilities. Right. You know what I mean? That's a good point, Chris. That's my, that's my thoughts on it. So that's pretty much what we had time to tell you of the Montauk right. Project. You guys can get the book. It'll be in the show notes. If you want to read it, it is a trip. There's two, I think, additional 
books that Preston wrote after this. We'll have video linked in the show notes of Preston talking himself so you can hear from his own words. And Al Balick, the guy who we didn't clearly explain yeah. who he is. We'll have lectures of him is really interesting. Let him tell you how he's related to the Philadelphia Experiment and to the Montauk and to the psychic known as Duncan. In the expansion, we're going to do even more strange, strange things. That come out of Montauk. That come out of Montauk and get into maybe some portals to Mars, get into some- You really want to do the portals to Mars, huh? I might, see, I might talk about it a little bit because it's fun and insane. But definitely we're going to talk about the real L that Jeremy found, uh, reptilian involvement at Montauk and the general lore of the area and the mystical properties of the land. John, Sounds any, exciting. Any final questions, John? That all makes sense? It's definitely a lot. It's a lot. To process. Um, I think it'll be easier for listeners to listen back and have a better. Yes. But just sitting here. Usually yeah. once the, edit, the episode's edited and everything's kind of. Right. For it's sure. a little easier and to this take This is a lot, a lot to digest. And for those of you who are awesome and here at the premiere on the live YouTube and talking with us, uh, you might want to go back and listen to this one. I'm sure you probably figured that out by now. But it is. We'll probably clarify some stuff in the expansion too. And if you are here, YouTube, hit that like button because it. it really does help us. And yeah. then there's like a lot of people that watch it and don't hit the like button. So mm-hmm. I'm guilty of that sometimes. I know I am too, but do it now. If you want to know when we go live, hit the notification bell and you'll be notified. Yes. Don't ever miss a live stream or a premiere or an episode drop. Hit the little bell symbol. That'll get you notified on Ding. Exactly. All right. Good job, guys. That was a lot to present. Woo. That was fun. I hope you guys liked it. If I never hear the word project again, it'll be too soon. <laughs> a lot of projects. Yeah. And let us know if you guys want, want to hear at some point, uh, you know. Don't ask. Stranger that. Things watch along. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we love hearing from you guys. Thank you for being here. I think we have some very special people to thank, don't we? Yes. And we want to thank especially those who signed up as Dogman Whispers, especially, and uh, Black Eyed Cool Kids. Yes. And, and the one that was the Skywalker? shadow person of interest. Oh, yes. The one special shadow person of interest who we will read here. Very special shadow person of interest. Yes, he is. And before we read them, I just want to say real quick. If you're enjoying our spiffy new logo, thank you to Derek. Oh, yes. Or D-Rex. Um, yeah. But what an awesome upgrade. He did exactly what we were hoping he would do. Just made it artisan, hand-done, bringing it to life. Yeah, if you guys have seen our new Vibrant update to our logo, that's the work of Derek. And you can check him out. We'll put links in the show notes. Terrific stuff. Yeah, you can find his work at d-w-r-e-x.com. He does kick-ass posters and graphic design work. Oh, yeah. Shirt designs, branding, logo, whatever you could want. But he's also the kind of guy that just fits right in the belief-hole. Super cool guy. That's right. Good friend. Uh, check it out. Links in the show notes. Check out the Instagram. Do it now. All right, we got some special people to thank. We do. We're going to read some Dogman Whispers today. And, and a very special shadow person of interest, Skadoozy. 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 What a man what on a, his own. What Woo! a doozy. Thank you, Skadoozy. Thank you for going above and beyond and being a shadow person of interest. We yes. are interested in you, sir. Aiden Menard is here. Aiden Menard, thank you. Welcome yes. to be here, yes. sir. Yes. Dogman Whisperer, yes. right? First Dogman Whisperer. Yes. All right. Welcome in. Yes. Welcome. Flesh Peeler is here. Ouch. Flesh Peeler, that sounds a little dangerous. I'm a little, a little scared. Dangerous man on the prowl. Welcome in, Flesh Peeler. Justin Balch. Justin Balch, thank you very much, yes. buddy. Appreciate that. Great to have you, yes. JB in the house. Yes. Kenneth Hunter. What's up? 
You scored, you bagged yourself a hole. You hunted a hole. No. Welcome, that sir. That sounds real weird. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you so much, my friend. Megan Pollock. Hello. Megan Pollock. What's up, girl? Hey, what's up? Welcome in. Thank you, sweetheart. Great to see you. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Welcome, Sarah Vallejo. Sarah Vallejo. Welcome Excellent. to the whole yes. Dog Band Whisperer. Yes. Excellent. United. Awesome. Happy to see Happy to see you. All right. Looks like Stacy looking on upgraded as well. Yes. Stacy. Climb up the ladder. We remember yes. you from the past. Thank you for coming back. Keep dodging those Tommy knockers out there. Yeah, that's right. She had the stinger. That was great. Thanks, Stacy. Hope you're doing well. Yes. Scott Leach, suck, suck our, our blood, blood, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining. Leeching <laughs> off the hole. <laughs> Actually, we're leeching off you because you're here to support us. No. And we appreciate it. Leeching yes. off of us. Welcome in, sir. It's a fair trade. <laughs> <laughs> Good to see you, my friend. Petra Benson. All right. Petra Benson. White Wolf Junkie. Yes. yes. Welcome to see you. Welcome to see you. That's a new one. <laughs> yes. Welcome to see you. Our brain is yes. mush by the end yes. of this. We yes. love you, we Petra. We love you, Petra. Thank you. Yukon Jana. Yukon yes. Jana. That's awesome. Are you an adventurer? It sounds like I it. I hope so. It's a sweet name. Take us on Your an adventure. ancestors were pioneers of the world. <laughs> All of the world. Welcome, Yukon yes, Jana. welcome. Connor Leitke. Oh, there's a blast from the past. Connor, what's up, man? How you doing? We haven't heard from you in a little while. That's right. Hope you're well, man. He's going to be helping us with some things in the hole, potentially. So he's a talented fella, and we look forward to hearing more from him. Jen Miller. All right. Jen Miller. Definitely don't kill her. <laughs> okay. Welcome no. in. Jen Miller, we love you. Thank you Jen for Jen Miller, here. what a winner. Thank Welcome you in. so much. Tracy Christie Hurt. Ouch. Ouch. She does not hurt me. She Tracy makes me smile. Tracy Christie Hurt, you are a special lady and we thank you for being here. Keep taming those dogmen. Welcome in. Welcome in. Laura Moriarty. Ooh, is that a villain from Sherlock Holmes? Is it just me, or do people's names get harder to rhyme with each Moriarty, the, the famous villain. Sherlock yes. Holmes nemesis. Well, you can make a reference, but not a rhyme. That's true. Moriarty, Moriarty down to party. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Laura Moriarty, down to party. All right. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Welcome to be here. Jared Ships. That's the easy one. <laughs> that was the ship Thank sound. you for the voyage, sir. Welcome into the hole. Hope you enjoyed our escapades into the Navy. Morgan Anonymous. All right. Climbing yeah, up Morgan. to the dog band level. Thank you so much for upgrading, Morgan. Yes. Thank you for staying anonymous. Yes. <laughs> Morgan Anonymous, we appreciate you. Excellent. Michael Calabrese, I'm pretty sure this is the, the one we went to high school with. Really? Thank you, my friend. I hope so. Yes. I always liked him. It'll be a flashback. Thank you for climbing up to the dog man Calabrese tier. is easy. It's not easy. Is an easy friend. <laughs> an easy friend. Welcome, Michael. Oh. Stephanie Vassar. Stephanie Vassar. Doesn't get classier than Stephanie Vassar. Can't get things faster. That too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It took us to the end of the halfway season, Mark, to start rhyming well. Welcome in, Stephanie. Welcome, Susanna M. Susanna M. Susanna M. Susanna M. Welcome Susanna M. <laughs> that did kind of leave us with a blank. Man, it's just so hard. It's just gotten so hard for my brain to even think of this stuff. Susanna M. for mystery. That's right. Welcome in, Susanna. Mystery dust in the hole. Beth Crutchley. Beth Crutchley. Beth Crutchley. Well, thank you for climbing up to the Dogman tier. That's a sign, too, guys. If you want to climb, if you want to give your name right again, keep climbing that tier. <laughs> yeah, keep, keep climbing, climbing up. Beth Crutchley, I've, she's been around for a while. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's an old school. She's a good lass. We appreciate you, Beth, and we love you, and we love all of you. Yes. We love all of you for... Oh, sorry. Oh, that's the end. Anyways, <laughs> that's the end. Uh, no, seriously, that's guys. Everyone that's still here, thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do it without you. Yes. We literally couldn't. We'd just talk to ourselves by ourselves. Yeah. Yes, and I'd probably just stop talking. No, we would still talk to each other. Yeah. We talked to each other. Just not on a schedule. That's the reason. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the reason we started the show, though, is because we were like, we just talk all the time. That's right. There's so much to talk about. Other people should listen. Other people should be mandated. <laughs> the um, beatings will continue until the morale improves. What is that from? I don't know. I've heard it many times, though. Down Periscope it's, with Fraser Crane. It's some sort of movie 
Kelsey Grammer. Meetings will continue until the round. <laughs> <laughs> this is the opposite of what you need to do. Uh, I do want to say, because we did say uh, we were going to read everybody who signed up at a certain yes. tier, but obviously- Probably should have said that at the beginning. We didn't realize- how many of you are so awesome and we just didn't get through all of you. So next time- They're so angry I don't know, right maybe now. Maybe we should put that a little further at the beginning. Maybe we'll drop in a warning or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. It won't be every, because the Black Eyed Cool Kids, we haven't even got to them yet. We right. just, we went ahead because we had more to sign well, yeah, up. Yeah, we had tier. more than we thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we are, mo- we're making progress. Next couple episodes, when we get back, we will be through everyone pretty much. And then it will go to $50 a mention. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. All right, guys, we love you. I uh, hope you enjoyed the extra long show before yes. we break, because this one will, is definitely quite a bit longer than our normal ones. Yes, and if you want to hear more so madness. I hope you enjoy that flesh peeler. That's right. <laughs> hope we satisfy your demands. <laughs> your demands. Uh, check out the expansion if you want more madness into the Stranger Things in Montauk. Yeah, check out the expansion. and. Uh, I think the only people left are probably the expansion members at this point. People in the chat on YouTube. Hello. Yeah, that's true. On oh yeah, you guys stick to the very end. And if you want to see a live stream on YouTube, as we mentioned, join us over the break for members only live stream. All right, um, guys, enjoy the break. We will be hunting, well, at least Jeremy and I will be hunting ghosts in Gettysburg. So maybe we'll bring back some evidence of the afterlife for you. Okay, well, that's just it. That's, we're done. Bye. 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 See you next Wait, time. on, on. I'm not doing it this time. You I have said no. to. Yeah, it's the last episode of the season, John. No, half season. On? Believeful. Believeful. We'll slow yours down. We will. <laughs> <laughs>